sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the Biden administration sending even more money uh, to Ukraine. Also going to be having our weekly sports segment as we do every Friday and much, much more. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, I hadn't realized that Madeleine Albright's funeral was this week, and there was a tribute to her in the Washington Post where they quote her at one point saying, quote, when the girls were growing up, her daughters, a lot of other women made me feel guilty. That's part of the special place in hell thing, because we're very judgmental about each other. So I was nervous about whether I was a good mother or not, end quote. The article goes on to say she's like all of us, Madeleine Albright is, except she was felling dictators and stopping genocide while worrying that her daughters would one day resent that she hadn't been there for all the scout meetings. Stopping genocide? By causing mass death. Because Albright herself told Leslie Stahl, who asked her about U.S. sanctions in Iraq in 1996, that a half million Iraqi children died as a result of those sanctions. Stahl asked her, I mean, that's more children than died in Hiroshima. And, you know, is the price worth it? Secretary of State Madeleine Albright said without hesitation, I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. And felling dictators? Who? Saddam Hussein, who the U.S. lied about having weapons of mass destruction to justify their invasion of Iraq 13 years after those sanctions caused the deaths of at least 1.5 million Iraqis and didn't accomplish whatever imperialist goals the U.S. claimed they would other than just creating a decade of misery and death for the Iraqi people? And let's not forget that Albright was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations before she was secretary of state. Corporate media likes to show a video of her dancing the Macarena or whatever she was doing during a break in the General Assembly sessions. But they don't remind you that she practically ran former Secretary General Boutros Boutros Ghali from power after he accurately reported that an Israeli attack on a refugee camp in Lebanon, which killed 100 people, was deliberate and was not a mistake, like the Israeli government claimed, and because Boutros Ghali called the conflict in Bosnia a war of the rich. And you can also thank Madeleine Albright for being a dogged promoter of NATO's expansion into former Soviet Union countries in Eastern Europe, despite other U.S. diplomats warning that this would prove disastrous and look where we are right now. And her consulting company helped Pfizer avoid sharing their intellectual property as the pandemic raged. Yes, she did this right before she passed away, which could have made the vaccine available to countries that still suffer from lack of vaccine access if they had shared that intellectual property. But Pfizer and her consulting firm sure made a lot of money. Albright said there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Where does that put Madeleine Albright with all she's done to actually destroy so many lives? 
the U.S. House of Representatives has passed a bill that requests President Biden to sell the frozen luxury assets of Russian oligarchs hit with sanctions and use the funds to provide additional military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Now, the bill is largely symbolic since there's no legal way to enforce such an act, but that is not stopping a whole bunch of people in the Biden administration from trying anyway. This includes Attorney General Merrick Garland, who told the Senate panel that Congress would be asked to give Biden expanded authority to confiscate and liquidate Russian property. But there is absolutely no precedent for the U.S. confiscating and selling assets of foreign entities and then appropriating that money to another foreign entity. So the Biden administration is looking to significantly expand the scope of presidential sanction authority. And you know this is not going to end with Russia if this actually happens. This House bill in particular, though, was drafted by Representatives Tom Malinkowski, a Democrat of New Jersey, and Joe Wilson, a Republican of South Carolina. Malinkowski is quoted in the New York Times saying, although the assets may nominally belong to individuals, all of us who understand how Russia works know that these are state assets. They're allowed to manage these assets on behalf of Putin in exchange for their loyalty to the regime. They earn this money by stealing it in a country where there is no due process, and then they take advantage of our due process to protect it. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the U.S. government summed up in a really ridiculous quote. Rich people sitting on Capitol Hill passing bills that aren't even legal, based on nothing but their biased opinions and half-baked lies, making it okay for them to steal from people they hate today so they can give that loot to their friends. Like, how does Malinkowski or anyone in Capitol Hill know how these people earn their money? And I tell you what. We know that Jeff Bezos earned his money by stealing it from the underpaid labor of Amazon workers, and he claims uh, there's no due process in Russia that helps them protect their ill-gotten gains, so they use our due process to protect it. Really? We know that there's no due process in this country for workers against corporate behemoths like the Walton family and the union-busting CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz. Rideshare drivers are still fighting to be recognized as employees instead of independent contractors by some massive rideshare companies because they make enough money, those companies, ripping off those workers to lobby the same Congress, making up these illegal bills to steal and sell Russian assets to keep letting U.S. rideshare companies get away with ripping their workers off. Folks on Capitol Hill are making up completely illegal ways to steal and liquidate Russian luxury assets for basically reparations to Ukraine. But we have to beg Biden and his friends for student loan debt cancellation, health care and affordable housing, while a whole perfectly good SpaceX worth $100 billion and multi-million dollar yachts and apartments and mansions owned by greedy, due process dodging U.S. oligarchs are sitting right here in this country. When's anybody going to do anything about that? Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. 
by any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Don DeBar, host of the Weekday World Show on Radio Justice LA. Don, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Don, uh, the Joe Biden administration has asked Congress for $33 billion uh, in uh, funding for humanitarian and military aid to Ukraine, which is is more than double the $14 billion uh, for that same kind of support that uh, has been authorized so far. I mean, we've really we've been tracking on the show here, you know, how much and how often uh, that uh, the United States is sending for this war effort in Ukraine done. I mean, something that I think will really only go to uh, uh, sort of prolong the war and extend the suffering of the um, Ukrainian people. But uh, I just feel like the United States is making it very clear. I actually think they're making their intentions clear on a number of levels. I mean, obviously, they're willing to give almost any amount of money uh, uh, to support this war effort. Uh, We're at a point where, you know, the Biden administration is being very, um, uh, uh, frankly, transparent in a way that we're not used to about their real desire for regime change inside Russia. And uh, all these sorts of things. And it comes to a point where it's just it, it's hard to even know what to say. And the fact that you continue to see just these absolutely vulgar amounts of money uh, going to this war effort, an effort that isn't going to benefit uh, uh, the masses of people in the United States, Don, and quite the contrary, it's uh, taking resources away from them. Yeah, there's a few things to parse out of this. First, uh, you know, if you look at $33 billion in the federal budget, in the, you know, the, what does the U.S. government spend? Um, where, what would they do with $33 billion? This is for five months, by the way. This is not everything that we've given Ukraine. This is $33 billion more. Mm-hmm. Now, we've already given them enough to conduct a war for two months with Russia on their border. You got to get, you know, wrap your mind around that. For every year since before World War II, we have spent much more than the equivalent of that on the outside chance that we would have a war with Russia or as a part of a plan to have a war with Russia, whatever. And so we've given that much money to these guys to have these last two months. It's clear that what's going on is we are at war with Russia. And how much are we spending? Well, before that, last year, no, I'm sorry, fiscal year 2020, which is the last year we really have numbers on, 2021. You know, the tax the week was two weeks. Tax day was two weeks ago. So we don't really don't know what actual spending of 2021 was. But in 2020, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, all of the money they spent, Section 8, sticky vouchers, uh, uh, mortgage assistance, subsidies, every the whole thing for the whole year, forty four billion dollars. The federal government's support of housing in a country with hundreds of thousands of homeless people and millions of people in foreclosure and eviction at this moment is going to give Ukraine for for five months what they spent in a whole year plus a third over in 2020 for housing for us. In other words, this war with Russia is a much higher priority for the Biden administration than housing Americans. I mean, I, (laughs) you know, that's true, right? I mean, because it's kind of obvious, 
when every and, I, and I've said this before, Don, and I think it, it, it's worth saying again, every time Biden has a press conference, every time he's on our television screens these days, ever since February, he's asking for more money, or at least he's telling us that he is going to ask Congress for more money for Ukraine. So, you know, it is it is obvious that this is what's going on, but to hear that disparity in this in in comparison to the one issue of housing in this country is just so much more enraging. And this is just the public money, the the money that we know about that is being uh, allocated uh, through legislation. There's always you know the untold amount of money that is being provided through covert operations, uh, contractors, like literal contractors on the ground uh, in Ukraine being paid through whatever U.S. alphabet agency that has a budget that doesn't uh, uh, isn't authorized by Congress and and doesn't report to Congress. Um, But these issues of, let's say, homelessness, they're not talked about by Joe Biden. You know, he is talking about, well, we're looking at ways that we can do more to cancel more student loan debt, but he's not coming out and being as forthright and unequivocating about just canceling all the student loan debt, not not as he is in being resolute and saying we need to throw all this additional money at Ukraine. And and I, I wonder how you are assessing the way people are receiving uh, this information, like I, I don't, I hope that people aren't just sitting there saying, "Yeah, let's just throw all this extra money at Ukraine." As they're driving through their, uh, uh, you know, cities, seeing all of these homeless people on the streets. Don, how how are you assessing that? Well, first of all, we really can't know what people are actually thinking because one of the things that they've done is to tamp down the feedback loop. Anyone that would actually publish information about what people actually think, if it's not what they want to hear, they've been banished. (laughs) So we won't know that part. But in terms of answering the question, first, I I just say I I will disagree with one thing. We do know exactly. Biden has not been equivocating whatsoever about his priorities. He has made clear a year and a half in just about a year and a half, what, 14 months into his term that he is not going to pay off student loans. He's going to talk nonsense. You know, he's going to shuck and jive, basically, like he's been doing, and uh, mispronounce words off his teleprompter. And, you know, there's he's been clear about that. All right, so, look, there's an, here's another number that, that shows you something. This is the SNAP budget for 2020, okay? This is um, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, food stamps, all of that. And I'm going to actually first say in, in 2019, because in 2020, we were in COVID, so they threw a lot more money at stuff because people, you know, all kinds of people lost all kinds of jobs and blah, 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 blah. The budget for the year in 2019 is $63.5 billion. Now, we don't compare that to $33 billion because, again, $33 billion is for five months to Ukraine, okay? For 10 months, it's $66 billion. And then for two more months, it's like another $1.26 billion or whatever. So, you know, you're talking about just shy of $70 billion, certainly more than $63.5 billion in 2019. 
Now, you have people in the United States who are seeing their kids go hungry or they themselves are going hungry so their kids don't go hungry or going without medical care or whatever because of the, the all kinds of things, the wage condition, the, the employment condition in general, and obviously this, the priorities. You know, not for nothing also, the U.S. has almost a trillion dollar budget on the books for the military. That comes out of everybody's pocket too. That money probably would feed, house, and clothe everybody in the United States and maybe half of the rest of the people in the world. But on this particular point, again, when we're looking at $33 billion for Ukraine for five months, or let's say annualized, uh, looking at it, that, that's more than, the, for example, the, the military budget annually for Russia is $65.9 billion. That's the Russian annual budget. We are paying for Ukraine as much money as Russia spends on its whole military. That includes for the bases in, not just in Sevastopol, but over, you know, in, in the Far East. And that's how much money we're giving to Ukraine. It's more than France, which spends $56.6 billion a year. It's more than Germany, which spends $56 billion. Saudi Arabia spends $55.6. Japan, $54. We're giving Ukraine more money that even than the UK, who spends $68.4 billion. That's how much money we're giving them. Again. Yeah, I mean, it really is uh, pretty wild, Don. And it's like when you look at this uh, uh, militarization, not only in this case, but really all over the globe and the role that NATO uh, plays into that, which at the end of the day is really an effort on the part of the United States to maintain really global control of what they call a, a full spectrum dominance. And another aspect of uh, how to hold on to that power is uh, the propaganda aspect of things. I mean, the Department of Homeland Security recently announced a disinformation governance board headed by a woman named Nina Ajenkowitz that is supposed to be focused chiefly on uh, migrant trafficking and uh, uh, Russian uh, disinformation, uh, to use their language. You know what I mean? And I just feel like uh, propaganda has been such a, a core aspect of this whole uh, war drive with Russia on behalf of the United States uh, using uh, Ukraine as a uh, proxy, Don, but it, it, it just seems clear that um, uh, the powers that be very much uh, want to lay hold to the consciousness of the American people as it concerns this war. And as of today, I think they're actually being pretty successful, unfortunately. You know, it's been said uh, many times over the last uh, century and change that uh, one of the things that one of the phenomenon that takes place uh, in capitalism in general uh, is the commodification of everything, including people, including our consciousness, really. Um, there's a way to make money on it and there's a way to uh, exploit it to secure power. And, um, you know, we have been developing that. Now, we that technology has been under development, uh, you know, for better than, you know, at least since Freud. You know, at least uh, since the uh, invention of uh, marketing and, uh, you know, all the all the different, uh, you know, ways of calculating what's going on in people's heads and giving them some story that'll make them, you know, be change their behavior, motivate their behavior. 
Um, and it's at a high science now. And the, and the amount of data that they have, you know, they have a picture of everybody's dinner from yesterday and their third cousin in, that lives in India. And, you know, every, you know, every damn conversation that you've had. And they have the wherewithal to process it and then turn around and here's what we want to tell people, because I know it's going to make a million of them touch their left eye and two of them are going to sneeze and 500 of them are going to pass wind or whatever. So, you know, when it's time to get people to either lay down for what could become a nuclear war, quite possible a nuclear war, more possible than ever. Quick scenario, if we have the time for it. In 1962, we almost had a nuclear war. Again, I've said this before, people have heard this before, too, that if you ask Fidel Castro uh, or the memoirs of Nikita Khrushchev uh, or the people around uh, John Kennedy, including Robert McNamara, who said it on film the way, reason we didn't have one was sheer luck, okay? At that time, there were a few dozen missiles 90 miles away from the United States, and that was what provoked nuclear war almost. We are now conducting a war against Russia on its border, and we have it surrounded. Push the wrong button in that scenario. And they have said, we have all kinds of weapons. You ain't going to want to see them, but we're going to use them if we have to. We're not going down. Yeah, I mean, and when we're looking at, you know, the way the U.S. is once again focusing on this this disinformation uh, from, uh, you know, targeted or, or, or spun by Russia foolishness, the idea that the Department of Homeland Security would um, be able to, I, I don't know, do anything about much of anything, to be honest, Don, but in 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 their newly formed disinformation governance board to to do anything constructive in regard to uh, tackling Russian disinformation, they've got someone who is the head of this governance board who is very interesting. This person, Nina Jankovic. Now, I I didn't think I had heard of her, but but now that I I read kind of through the the description of of her previous work. Now I remember where I saw her, and she has been a talking head on some uh, uh, corporate media uh, outlets, particularly in regard to uh, Hunter Biden's laptop issue. So who is this woman that Joe Biden chose to head this board, by the way, Nina Jankowitz, and why is she so very problematic for this or, quite honestly, any position in anybody's government? Well... She's perfectly qualified for the job. Okay. <laughs> the job is, in essence, to make sure the American people do not hear or tell the truth. And her job is to use the power of homeland security. In other words, this construct that was developed after uh, 9-11 that had never existed in American history, as sordid as American history was before, this was beyond the pale even for that country. And she is now in charge of policing speech and public discourse with criminal sanctions and all kinds. God knows what else they're going to do. Now, we've seen the evolution of um, government uh, direct hand and propaganda uh, particularly accelerate uh, in the last 20 years. Uh, the reconstruction of the media scape, uh, the 1996 Telecom Act and some of the modifications thereafter. Some of the decisions made by the FCC that were even outside of that. 
the Obama administration uh, lifting the alleged firewall, even the pretense of a firewall, between propaganda generated, uh, acknowledged, declared propaganda generated by the CIA and Radio Liberty and all of that, Board of Broadcast Governors, that at least you're not allowed to directly take these uh, video news releases or, you know, this particular interview or whatever and broadcast it to Americans because it's just too offensive to tax people and make them pay to be propagandized. They took that firewall down in the Obama administration. And now, you know, we've seen the leveraging of of government, uh, you know, police power over all of these different platforms where people were, you know, social media places where people were having conversations on their own that already were being mediated and suddenly it's with both feet. So that they would appoint a uh, censorship czar, uh, basically, with criminal power, you know, sanction power, that was just the next step in, you know, in a long process that's been going on. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the, the censorship and information suppression that we've seen in the wake of the war in Ukraine, I think really has been um, amazing. But uh, in truth, I think it's a part of a, a, a historical process of censorship of um, dissenting opinions and things like that. I mean, we see these major platforms like the New York Times and others just put out straight up smear pieces um, yeah. about uh, uh, anti-imperialist journalists and things like that and writing people off as you know, conspiracy theorists simply for raising um, uh, relevant political and historical context for what's happening in Ukraine. And I just think it says a lot about uh, the state of popular consciousness, Dan, and where the political environment is. Excuse me, Don. Um, I think it says a lot about where the popular consciousness is to where just relevant information is uh, uh, considered, you know, an endorsement for, you know, bloodshed and war and destruction or something like that. Like, that's sort of how uh, degraded uh, things are here in the U.S. And as such, uh, I actually think it sort of uh, highlights the importance of having these kinds of alternative platforms that, you know, are going to give this analysis, you know, mm-hmm. without uh, uh, the hands of billionaires and corporations in their pockets sort of uh, muddying the waters, you know? Here's that, and here's the problem that they face. Okay, you know, this is the elite, whoever that might be. The reality that, that you know they construct this virtual universe that people spend more time in than ever. Okay, even little kids now they spend most of the time mediated through a cell phone contraption, communicating with the rest of the world. And you know it's the fantasy land where there's democracy and brotherhood and et cetera, except for these evil enemy guys over here that we got to kill and burn and eat and whatever now that is the enemy du jour du moment whatever. And uh, unfortunately, though, you know this, these well-spun you know webs disintegrate in the face of reality. You can show people pictures of steak and shrimp and whatever all you like. If they're not eating, at some point they're going to notice it and they're going to think there's a problem. And if they can't find a remedy in the existing channels, which is exactly the situation people have been facing in this country for 20, 30, 40 years, some people since they got here, really, okay, like about a third to a half of the population. But suddenly reality presents in a way that cannot be contained. And Professor Tony Montero uh, discusses it as uh, there comes a point when uh, the rule, the ruled will no longer be ruled under the old uh, rules and uh, the leaders cannot lead under the old rules. And this is the kind of thing that they're up against. And so 
as people start to discuss and describe and communicate, you know, the common experiences that they're having, this is a, a, an existential threat to, to the power of, of this elite. And so they're trying everything they can with you know, more and by heavier and heavier hand, basically. And this is, you know, as you say, this is like the, the most, the fullest expression of this, the evolution of this thing. And, you know, I don't After this, basically, you know, you have thought crime. You know, they, they start trying to read your mind and they just shoot you if you look, you know, un, unhappy or whatever. Yeah, definitely seems like it could be heading that way. Well, we thank you so much, Don, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're marking the anniversary of the Chernobyl accident. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Kevin Camps, radioactive waste watchdog at Beyond Nuclear. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Kevin, we recently marked uh, about 36 years, if uh, memory serves, since the uh, uh, nuclear disaster at Chernobyl, uh, I believe inside Russia. And I was hoping you could sort of uh, break down some of the history of what happened during this disaster. And how do you sort of see it uh, affecting things at an environmental level, political level and what have you uh, all these years later? Sure. Well, it did happen 36 years ago, April 26, 1986. It happened in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, very close to the border with the Belarus Republic. So part of the Soviet Union, Russia had a huge hand in the disaster because of the secrecy of the Soviet Union, the faulty design, the bad training of the operators. So Russia certainly had a big hand in it. And um, it's the biggest nuclear catastrophe in history so far, although Fukushima in 2011, is giving it a run for its money. But um, none other than Mikhail Gorbachev in his memoir said that the disaster at Chernobyl was a major contributor to the fall of the Soviet Union. And his environmental advisor named Alexei Yablokov also wrote a book about the ecological and human consequences of Chernobyl. And one of the shocking figures that he included there was that from 1986 to 2004, so that was almost 20 years ago, his estimate for how many people had died prematurely because of their exposure to the radioactivity was around a million. It was just shy of a million deaths that he attributed to Chernobyl. So it gives you some idea of the, you know, global catastrophe that Chernobyl was and still is. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, in regard to uh, current 
uh, situations with Chernobyl, there has been uh, some concern about the site because of the uh, Russian military action in Ukraine. Uh, There have been reports of elevated radiation levels uh, at the site, but uh, officials say that it's uh, no, there's no need to panic. Uh, It's not a picnic, but the levels are somewhat elevated. Can you give us some insight into what seems to me to be kind of a confusing uh, message about the the radiation levels at Chernobyl? And, and is this something that we should be concerned about that it seems like people are kind of hesitant to talk about? Yes, out to a distance of about um, 20 miles in any given radius away from Chernobyl, it's the exclusion zone, sometimes referred to as the dead zone. It's so highly radioactively contaminated that essentially it's off limits to human habitation and only with permission can people enter the dead zone. So when the Russian military rolled in with even tanks and other heavy equipment and large numbers of people on the first day of the invasion and seized the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, which has four, I mean, three shutdown reactors and one melted down reactor, but a lot of radioactive contamination and a lot of radioactive waste on the site, what happened was they kicked up a lot of that radioactive dust And then more recently, we found out that, incredibly, the Russian military was so ignorant and careless about what it was doing that they actually had soldiers digging trenches that they then slept in, inhabited for some time, out in what's called the Red Forest, which is the worst of the worst in the dead zone. And the reason they call it the Red Forest is the initial radioactive releases were so large-scale that they hit this pine forest near the nuclear plant, and it actually turned red. In color. It was one of the reactions to the radioactivity. They really should not have been there at all. They certainly should not have been digging trenches and then sleeping in them. And there's some evidence that some of those Russian military troops suffered acute radiation poisoning. Their exposures were so high. And it was at least a part, if not the major reason, that the Russian military simply left the Chernobyl site. So Ukraine is back in control of the Chernobyl site. And, uh, You know, there's so many concerns. The electricity was cut off a number of times during the occupation, and um, there is high-level radioactive waste in storage pools that needs to be continuously cooled with cooling pumps circulating the water. And so as soon as the electricity goes down, you have a ticking clock. You have a fuse that if it, you know, goes off and that pool water evaporates or boils away, you could have a radioactive waste fire in one of those drained pools, which would possibly be equal to or worse than the initial Chernobyl catastrophe. So those are the kind of risks that were um, being taken by this military um, seizure of the Chernobyl plant. Yeah, and I'm wondering, um, Kevin, like what sort of lessons do you think that, you know, we can learn from the the Chernobyl disaster in terms of, you know, how uh, uh, these uh, nuclear plants sort of operate and sort of the dangers uh, of them? It just feels like uh, there's a lot to uh, to learn and to get into in terms of the substance of how this sort of situation can be instructional as we're definitely still grappling with issues with nuclear materials all these years later. Yeah, Three Mile Island in the U.S., Chernobyl in the Soviet Union, Fukushima in Japan. These are warnings to humankind that nuclear power is just too dangerous, whether it's an accident, whether it's intentional. I mean, the Russian military intentionally attacked the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in the south of Ukraine. 
And luckily, they didn't uh, cause a meltdown. But Zelensky was not wrong when he said that it could have resulted in six Chernobyls because there were six operating reactors there, as well as all the radioactive waste. And they actually shell the radioactive waste storage area. So it's just insane what they did. But it shows that whether it's intentional military attack, whether it's a natural disaster like the earthquake and tsunami at Fukushima, whether it's uh, design and operator errors like at Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, there's so many pathways to radioactive catastrophe at nuclear power plants. It's a really bad idea. So we should just abolish nuclear power. It's not a solution to the climate crisis. It takes too long. It costs too much. And we can waste a lot of time and money on this fault solution that won't solve the problem and then have no time and money left to actually solve the problem with renewables and efficiency. Yeah, you know, what you uh, mentioned about, uh, you know, the nuclear plant being attacked in Ukraine, you know, there are conflicting reports coming out of Ukraine about, uh, you know, what the Russian army is doing, what the Ukrainian army is doing. And there's one particular report about uh, uh, an alleged 600-hour shift at Chernobyl, where Russian soldiers were claimed to have been using the plant as a staging site for raising to Kiev. Um, and one plant worker uh, is identified uh, by Reuters as saying that they were captured and returned and allowed to return to work uh, to their workstations after long negotiations. Um, but you know, they were eventually, uh, um, you know, just allowed to work. But then there was this claim that they were forced to work 600 hours on the job, but then eventually allowed to return to the town where they live after Russian troops finally left Chernobyl at the end of March. I mean, this report uh, hasn't been validated, but I mean, I, I guess it, it, it raises a question about the kind of security or the kind of care that needs to be taken in military actions where nuclear sites are vulnerable, and not just nuclear sites, but the people who work at the nuclear sites. So, I mean, what can be said about this particular report that is, again, it's un, unsubstantiated. It's, it's a claim that was made by one person. It has, been, has not been validated. But what does this say about uh, the way that not just nuclear plants are unprotected, but the workers are, are uh, you know, kind of unprotected as well? Yeah, I think it's fairly uh, certain that actually, I mean, in a very real sense, the Russian military did hold a workforce of 211 people at Chernobyl, the ones who happened to be on shift when they arrived to seize it, held them for many weeks on end. And, you know, how bad were the conditions? I guess that's maybe where there may be some doubt, but there were reports of not enough food, certainly not enough sleep. Uh, very high pressure, very high stress, because in a sense, they are now working, if they're allowed to work at all, they're working under armed occupation. And how stressful that was on the workers. I mean, the Ukrainian government referred to it as psychological uh, trauma, that not only were they physically exhausted, they were also psychologically exhausted, partly because they didn't even know if their families were safe in the Chernobyl worker town of Slavudich, which is some distance away to get away from the radioactive contamination. So fortunately, you know, nothing catastrophic did unfold at Chernobyl, luckily. 
And eventually, when the Russian military did leave, the workers, of course, were able to swap out with fresh workers. But it just wasn't right. And there's a similar situation at Zaporozhye in the south of Ukraine, where the Russian military still occupies. And although the shifts are allowed to change, there's still the added stress of working under armed occupation and, you know, worrying about your families and the ongoing warfare in the area. Totally. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. Today, joined by Miguel Garcia of the Anti-Conquista Collective and the host and creator of the Sports as a Weapon podcast. Miguel, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean and Jackie. Good to be back. Absolutely. And uh, Miguel, uh, here recently, uh, the sports news site Sportico published an article talking about how the U.S. military is actually looking to college athletes basically as a pool of recruitment uh, using athletic scholarships uh, to bring them in. And I was hoping you could tell us more uh, about this piece and what do you think it says about the relationship between uh, militarism and sports in the U.S.? Yeah, so this article just came out, I think, yesterday or Wednesday. But this, when I started reading this article, um, it didn't surprise me that this is an idea that came up because uh, folks don't know. I, I'm actually a cultural anthropologist. I just have a master's. I didn't get my PhD, but my research was on militarization of culture in the U.S. And so one of my professors I studied under, we were talking, you know, a lot of the research had to do with, like, movies and entertainment, you know, how the CIA and the U.S. government, Department of Defense, uh, works with Hollywood when it comes to, like, war movies to make sure, you know, it has the right narrative that the U.S. government wants. And this is exactly what this reminded me of, but now with sports. So this article from Sportico is called Military Mole's Massive Recruiting Plan to List College Athletes. And so this company um, called Orchestra Macro Systems, I believe they're contracted with the uh, U.S. Navy. Their CEO, Dave Maloney, um, came up with this idea. He's a former uh, track athlete at Auburn. And so this program he's calling the Scholar Athlete Intelligence and Leadership Program. It's pretty much what you said, uh, Sean, is their, the idea is to try to recruit college athletes um, and replace the regular school-funded athletic scholarships besides the big ones, football and basketball, um, and replace them with these scholarships where these athletes would, you know, get a scholarship to play sports at a college. And then, but the catch is they would have to uh, do some type of military service after college, which is already kind of happens in, when it comes to like ROTC programs. But I don't think it's, I don't think I've ever 
seen this happen when it comes to actual, you know, them being really open about it and proposing this idea for actual, like, the rest of college sports. And obviously they, they're not targeting football and basketball because those are the big money sports and those athletes probably would not maybe not want to do it. So I find it interesting that they're also targeting the smaller sports that nobody, uh, that don't get the big funding like tennis, wrestling, um, golf, you know, the, not the major sports of college sports. So even their strategy of targeting certain athletes, I found very interesting. Um, but yeah, I ho- hopefully this doesn't happen because this is not a good idea. Um, well, not a great thing. It's just another example of how the U.S. military, the U.S. government uh, is trying to use U.S. culture, not here, with sports uh, to continue their uh, their U.S. imperialism, um, their, their aspirations to continue U.S. imperialism. Yeah, the interesting thing about this uh, potential program, uh, aside from what you just mentioned, Miguel, is the fact that they're, they're really clear on you know, what they can target and and what programs they can't, because the NCAA bylaws likely wouldn't restrict the federal government from funding some athletic scholarships in exchange for mandatory service. So I feel like the Department of Defense has really done their homework here. They've they've targeted programs, uh, scholarship programs that don't get a lot of attention, uh, that there are not a lot of scholarships for, uh, as, a, as opposed to, you know, football, base, uh, baseball, basketball, uh, for in these smaller sports. And they kind of know that they, they have a, a sort of loophole in the NCAA just by not having a restriction uh, for the federal government funding athletic scholarships that they might be able to squeak through with a few of these, even if it's not widespread, you know, accepted carte blanche at every university across the country. But, you know, it is that that first couple of instances where they would do this and it would prove, quote unquote, successful, I guess, that I think is is indicative of the fact that, yeah, I think the Department of Defense did their homework and they're very serious about this. And I think that this is something that we shouldn't just, you know, dismiss as, oh, you know, the NCAA isn't going to let this happen because maybe they couldn't stop it. Yeah, that's a, um, that's something that's a good point you brought up, uh, Jackie, because. Um, at first, when I was reading this article, and I also listened to a podcast from these same uh, authors from Sportico wrote it, and then their podcast, they were talking about, the uh, one of the authors was talking about how, at first, he didn't, when he was in an interview, uh, people, you know, administrators from schools and, you know, school directors, stuff like the sports directors at, at, the, at certain schools that he interviewed. He was expecting them to be like, ah, oh, this is a dumb idea. Like, we wouldn't go with it. But he was actually a little surprised that that some of the people he talked to at universities weren't that opposed to the idea. Like, they didn't say, like, oh, it's happening. But they were like, oh, maybe it's a good idea. Um, and that, that just shows that all they got to, like you're saying, all they're going to have to get is, a couple schools on board to get it going and then it might just spread from there. Um, so I think 
this is actually possible as much as they, some of these people are downing that it might happen. The fact that there's some NCAA people saying, hey, maybe it's a good idea. We'll look at it. Um, we'll, you know, mold this over um, is not a good sign. And one of the people that they spoke to was, I think, uh, the athletic director from Notre Dame, Notre Dame. That's a big school. That's a big school for when it comes to sports. So if he's got someone like the athletic director of Notre Dame actually saying, oh, maybe that's not a bad idea. We'll have to look into it. That, to me, just shows how other athletic directors and other uh, school administrators from other big universities and even the small ones will be looking at this. Um, so just knowing that someone from a big school doesn't think it's a bad idea is uh, really concerning to me. And something else that was in the article, uh, this person, David Maloney, from this company, Orchestra of Macro Systems, uh, he started, you know, talking to U.S. senators and other uh, U.S. government officials, you know, pretty much lobbying, talking to them about his idea. And Sportico was able to get in contact with one of the, a lot of them didn't want to make comments about the article, but they were able to get a, a spokesman from Senator Tommy Tuberville from Alabama. And if folks don't know, Tommy Tuber, Tuberville used to be the head coach of Auburn football, Auburn University, the University of Auburn. Um, so even the people he's targeting, he's targeting a former football coach turned, you know, senator, which is, I guess, if you want to do this, that's an actual smart strategy to do if you're going to get a former football coach who's now a U.S. senator behind it. So if he could get someone like him behind it, he'll be key to getting others behind it. Yeah, and switching gears a little bit, Miguel, I also wanted to talk about this uh, recent piece published in the Washington Post that's uh, centered around Royce White, a former NBA player who actually led some large uh, demonstrations a couple years ago around the racist police killing of George Floyd, but uh, at a certain point took a a right-wing turn. And I was hoping you could sort of uh, help us understand more about just who Royce White is and uh, what do you make of his political trajectory? So I found this article yesterday, um, and I was a little shocked because I didn't know about this, and I know of Royce uh, White. He's a he was a pretty good bas- uh, college basketball player. Um, he was the only reason he didn't play in the NBA. Like in 2013, I believe he was going to get drafted, but he like withdrew from the draft or something because he has. Uh, he has battles with uh, his mental health. His, he has re- he has really bad anxiety, so he's had issues like that. And so, after not getting drafted, he ended up being G League. And after that, he just stopped playing in the NBA, and he became a a big advocate for mental health. And so, he got really he he pretty much lately. I don't know if folks follow the NBA. The last couple of years, there's been more talk about NBA players and mental health, like right now, currently with Ben Simmons. Um, but Royce White was one of the first players to start actively talking about this in the open and trying to get NBA players to, dis- to discuss this and how important mental health is um, and how it shouldn't be stigmatized. So that's how uh, Royce White 
kind of got known as an activist. And then, as you said, he he's from Minnesota. And so during the summer of 2020, he led a lot of the protests when after George Floyd's killing. So finding this article that he's pretty much done a heel turn and turn, turn right, like far right, was a little shocking for me. Um, so it's just... Uh, it was, it's interesting how he just went from a leftist to now he's a far right, like, like he's far right on his politics. It's just, I don't know. It's crazy. It's, it's just started tripping me out. And now, now here he is like being really good friends with someone like Steve Bannon and saying he's fans of Tim pool and Alex Jones, people like this. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting and unfortunate turn, uh, for Royce White, in my opinion. Yeah, very interesting thing that he said in his uh, campaign uh, for uh, a Congress was that he made comics of, uh, comments about Representative Ilan Omar, and he said that his problem with Omar was not that she's not an American or that she's not from Minnesota, but that she's in on it. She's a globalist. Those were his words that she's, quote unquote, in on it. Now, I think there's plenty of criticism that we can, you know, uh, level at Ilhan Omar for particular policies. But just the idea that he he said that she's, quote unquote, in on it leads me to believe that he has really fallen into uh, this uh, far right conspiracy uh, theory kind of QAnon weird uh, uh, space that has emerged over the few uh, uh, the last few years. And, and I mean, I, I think obviously that the clue is also that he is, you know, a fan of Alex Jones and, and he is, you know, palling around with these folks like him. But I mean, I, I, I wonder if, you know, this is not just something that we have to be concerned about in regard to how easy it is to fall into this kind of trap for people who are not, you know, as politically astute as we are, uh, Miguel, but also just the way that politicians will easily seize on celebrities and athletes in particular who, you know, might be tipping a toe into those waters and then they just drag them in and then just use them as figureheads, you know, that that maybe this guy is being used and he really doesn't even realize that that he is. Yeah, um, Jackie, I think that's also a possibility how he could be used by these uh, far right figures with a big platform. Um, to, you know, you pretty much use his celebrity for their advantage, for their right-wing politics. And it kind of reminds me of someone else, like a, a Enos Cantor, who maybe a couple years ago we wouldn't be talking about when it comes to politics. And out, out of nowhere, this past year, he started talking more and more of right-wing supporting right-wing politics, speaking about, the, you know, China and the Uyghur genocide. And that's kind of what this reminds me of as well. Voice White is also talking about those similar things. And he could be just being taken advantage of, or he actually might even know what he's doing and could also kind of be like a Candace Owens-type figure where he's pretty much a grifter and knows that 
you'll get a bigger platform at the right wing. And that's something one of his former coaches actually said that is possible. He said, um, this is a quote from the article. The coach said, quote, I think I hope he's doing it because no one on the left is going to give him that platform that he's getting on the right. He's smart enough to realize the power of this platform, even though deep down inside he knows that the people he's associating with are despicable. They've said things about his race. The things they've said about his race are despicable. He's not an idiot, end of quote. So I think it's possible either way. He might be might not know what he's doing and kind of, you know, getting led on by these right-wing figures. Or he might have figured out this is just another way to make some money and be a grifter. So I think it's possible either way. I also think it's interesting that him being really good friends with Steve Bannon, one of the quotes that they have Steve Bannon saying in this article is, here you got a quote, here you got a black guy, a basketball player in Minneapolis that actually talks about real issues, Bannon said, that I think can resonate. So right there, that quote also uh, might show that, yeah, they, they might be using them like you're saying, Jackie, because to me, that quote just sounds like Steve Bannon said, oh, I got my, you know, I got my token black man here that I could uh, show off to all my right wing friends that he's on our side. So I, I could see that also. I could see it both ways. Either he's getting duped or he actually knows what's going on and he just decided to be a grifter. <laughs> Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Miguel, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, April 29th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that by calling us at 3-2... Now I can't even remember what the numbers are. At 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. Also, you can hear us on Sputnik dot mave that's m-a-v-e dot digital but you can also listen to us live on your radio dial at 105.5 fm and 1390 a.m in the washington dc area from 2 to 4 p.m eastern time five days a week and we are streaming 
for your viewing pleasure, live on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat, just like my synapses, are live. And remember, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Radhika Desai, a professor at the University of Manitoba and director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. Dr. Desai, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Jackie and Sean. Great to be here again. Absolutely. And, you know, Dr. Desai, as the war in Ukraine enters its third month, I wanted to begin today by talking about how uh, the West is operating as an obstacle to peace in Eastern Europe. Uh, Earlier this week, a Russian foreign minister, uh, Sergei Lavrov, claimed that the West, uh, particularly the UK and the US, um, have uh, basically been uh, forcing Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to, you know, backtrack on some of the promises made during talks between Ukrainian uh, and Russian officials last month, Uh, basically making the claim on a Russian news channel that... um, Uh, When the Russian government drafted uh, some, you know, stipulations, if you will, for the talks, sent them for approval to Kiev and things like that. Um, The Ukrainian government was demanding that some radical changes be made and things like this. And of course, this is happening as the U.S. and the West uh, are making clear uh, their intention to prolong this war as long as they can by, you know, sending weapons, uh, U.S. President. Joe Biden uh, pledging tens of billions of dollars, and that's just for the next several months, if uh, I understand it correctly. And so it just seems, Dr. Desai, that, you know, peace, which you would think is what everyone would want here. I mean, particularly the U.S. with its claims of caring about sovereignty and democracy and things like that. But when you look at this whole war from the standpoint of it being a U.S. proxy war against Russia sort of using Ukraine, well, then it really seems that uh, peace would actually run contrary to uh, Washington's designs on full-spectrum dominance, Doctor. Absolutely. I mean, the fact of the matter is, I mean, I wrote a column many weeks ago arguing precisely this, that the, that, that the U.S. wants the current war to fester. And uh, certainly nothing has changed over the many weeks since I wrote that. I mean, what are some of the ways that you can tell that, that, that this is the case? Number one, they keep increasing the war aims. So, for example, like, and, and of course, the other thing is, on the one hand, they claim that they are not at war, that this is Ukraine's war. On the other hand, the uh, the the, uh, uh, the the British um, foreign minister says we must get Russia out of Ukraine completely, meaning Russia has to give up Ukraine as well, which wasn't even in the Minsk agreements. Um, and um, and so. Um, and, and, and yeah, it wasn't even in the Minsk agreements. There are many other things that need to happen. And um, so 
so that's the first thing. The second thing is that the sheer racism with which uh, they talk they talk about Russia is simply incredible. Uh, the more and more the Russians are simply other. Not it's not just that Putin is a Hitler. It's that Russians are somehow inherently aggressors. And so we're increasing this discourse. And why does this matter? I mean, quite apart from being the being morally repugnant in the first place, the fact of the matter is that every war has to end with negotiations. And the more you demonize the enemy, the less it is possible to sit down and have negotiations. I mean, if you consider the fact that after decades of terrorism, the British government still had to sit down and fight, and, sorry, and negotiate with the IRA, you'll appreciate what I'm trying to say. So every time there is a negotiating possibility, uh, the, the, the West keeps, you know, ratcheting up the... Um, the West keeps ratcheting up the, the temperature in the thing. And of course, finally, as you've seen, I mean, you know, when I said that the West wants the conflict to fester, one of the key purposes, particularly of the United States in this, is to sell arms. The more arms that are bought, the better it will be. The military-industrial complex is simply loving this war, absolutely. And so now, when other means of... Um, uh, uh, of, of supplying arms to Ukraine uh, are, are sort of being exhausted, the, the United States has dusted off this so-called Lend-Lease Agreement. And two things about it, you know, uh, when, when, when selling this agreement to, to, to Congress people and, and the general public, you know, they remind people about how Lend-Lease was critical to winning the Second World War, that it enabled the United States to be the arsenal of democracy. Well, I don't know about democracy, but the United States certainly wants to be once again the arsenal in a big, unending, constant conflict. It's going to go on because the United States sees opportunity. I mean, if you look at the Second World War and the First World War, the United States benefited while other people destroyed themselves. The same scenario is being recreated again. And the final point about Lend-Lease is that, you know, uh, of course, uh, all the allies who were fighting and who, who took on this, uh, this, uh, these loans, they, uh, uh, they, of course, had to express gratitude for it. But the fact of the matter was that the United States squeezed them for everything. First of all, that meant that they were not allies, they were essentially suppliers in the war. They were essentially war profiteers. And we are told, you know, that the equipment was, you know, the, the uh, loan repayment was, was, was to, you know, uh, toned down, etc., etc. But the fact of the matter is that the equipment, by the time it was used, was not much, would not, were not worth much anyway. And for the money the United States didn't get, what it got was policy compliance. The United States made, for take the example of Britain, Britain only paid off those loans back in 2006. So, you know, for more than 55 years after the end of the Second World War. But at the time, as soon as the war ended, they used, the United States used these uh, loans, these, these debts, essentially to extract policy concessions. And Ukraine, I mean, you know, what's going, Ukraine already doesn't have the money to run itself. Where is it going to get the money to pay for all these arms for? So think about all these things. I mean, the situation is frightening. Yeah, the situation really is terrifying, particularly 
when in this country there is this new, we might as well call it the Ministry of Truth, this new disinformation, uh, whatever it is, that is uh, uh, this agency in the Department of uh, uh, Homeland Security of all places to uh, manage or, uh, you know, or root out disinformation, particularly of the Russian kind, right? So, you know, Dr. Decide, this goes right in line with what you said a few minutes ago about the demonization, not just of Putin, but of Russia, of Russian people by extension. And I think that the fact that so much of what we talk about that led up to this war, the 2014 coup, the, you know, arming and legitimizing of neo-Nazi factions into the Ukrainian army, the eight-year civil war, all of these things have been completely eradicated from the the historical memory of corporate journalists. But the fact is that Russia has continued to make claims that their intervention was just, and they've done it again uh, with a meeting with UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez, who visited Moscow, and Putin gave justification uh, for Russia's intervention in Ukraine based on the precedent that was set by the International Court of Justice, uh, their verdict in the Kosovo crisis. Now, Dr. Desai, this isn't this isn't, for me at least, you know, a a a, a claim that that Putin is correct or uh, that I agree with with his assessment. My point is that there have been several instances where the Russian government, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, uh, Vladimir Putin himself, in the statement that he made on the day the in, the intervention uh, happened that Friday, did make very valid claims for why Russia felt the need to act as it did. And it's all been completely washed away as Russian propaganda, while everything nefarious, bad, evil, and and sometimes downright comically uh, uh, crass is said about Putin and by extension Russia. So we've got this, this blanket carte blanche approval of not just war, but of NATO and possibly war crimes covered up by the Ukrainian army that people are saying are, are not happening. So, I mean, what what are your thoughts on, you know, the, uh, uh, Putin's recent statements about the ICJ verdict in, in the Kosovo crisis as justification another justification for Russia's actions and the, t- the the response in the U.S. to dismissing all of that all of the time just to continue to beat this drumbeat of, of another endless war. So first thing, I, I just want to say that you said many, many important things here. So, And if I forget anything, just come back to me. But number one, I think you used an extremely important phrase. You said historical memory. If you think about what's going on right now, it's all based on simply asserting time and time again that Russia is the aggressor because Russian, uh, Russian troops crossed the, an international border, etc. But this completely erases the long history behind it. The eight-year-old civil war, the Minsk agreements, the way in which the, uh, the West and the United States in particular has aimed to essentially weaken, demean, and even dismember Russia on the model of Yugoslavia. So that's the first thing. The second thing is considering the sheer number 
of uh, illegal American interventions that we have seen and illegal American wars that we have seen around the world, the fact of the matter is that it was only a matter of time before Putin would have, you know, dusted off some um, uh, 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 you know, dusted off a pretext and said, you know what, the uh, United States did this, so so we are doing it. So in some ways, and I think that in if the West were to really be concerned about international legality, etc., it should examine this claim in the historical context in which it was made and either agree or dismiss it. But that's not what is done. It is simply dismissed. It's like, and, and the reason is very simple, because any serious scrutiny of history would put such flattering light, I'm not saying totally vindicate, but would put such flattering light on the Russian case and such unflattering, in fact, positively uh, a demolishing sort of, uh, it would positively demolish the West's case for whatever it's doing, that they don't want to look at history. And so we've now got a, a new generation or a new type of discourse, let's put it that way, made by perfectly reputed intellectuals who are basically lying. The other day, I happened to listen to a Financial Times interview between Gideon Rachman, who is one of their big uh, foreign correspondent types, and uh, Graham Allison, the fellow who came up with the idea of the facilities trap. Graham Allison, and they're discussing the possibility of nuclear war. Graham Allison outright lied and said the United States needed to use uh, bombs in, um, at, in against atomic bombs against Hiroshima and Nagasaki in order to end the war. American historians have demonstrated the falsity of this claim. This has been written about over and over again. But here is this reputed guy, you know, probably drawing a high salary in some, you know, Ivy League American university saying this, you know. And this was just one of them. In fact, I was just thinking, you know, if I had to sit down and refute a law, uh, to refute the lies, I would have to sit down and write like a really long paper about this, this single interview. So the, when they lies proliferate to such extent, you will sort of feel helpless. Like, which one do you refute? Yeah, and on that note, I was hoping to get a bit more into something you mentioned a moment ago, Dr. Desai, when you talk about the the, the racialization of uh, uh, Ukraine and Russia in a way that uh, I don't think we've necessarily seen in a little while. There seems like this very intentional sort of counterposing of Ukraine, <clears throat> excuse me, as, you know, the kind of a uh, pure white country, whereas with uh, Russia, you know, uh, getting cast as like, you know, this uh, Slavic nation of dark peoples and things like that. It's just very interesting to see the West basically um, uh, try to like pull Russia's like white card, if you will, like trying to, you know, um, uh, uh, remove their, their whiteness just for the sake of of the desires of U.S. imperialism. And it's it's a strange uh, uh, sort of thing. But I mean, it also just seems like one more way to try to justify um, U.S. In, in involvement in this conflict as part of this sort of broader, you know, uh, a Russophobia campaign. No, I mean, you know, what you're saying is quite interesting. Now, first of all, let's let's basically say that in general, the Russians see themselves as a multi-ethnic, multicultural sort of country, multinational country, in the sense that they have among within Russia people who consider this as entirely Russian, who maybe, you know, uh, uh, have different ethnic origins, different religions, there are a very large number of Muslims in Russia, uh, etc. So I think that, you know, if by that, uh, uh, the you know, the West is claiming that 
somehow this is also not significantly the case in the Ukraine, that's also not true. I mean, if Ukraine wants to claim Crimea, you know, that then it, it is also not exactly lily white or anything. But in any case, the more important thing, you know, the whole race issue is really interesting. On the one hand, of course, I completely agree with everybody who points out that it is so darn racist to basically have more sympathy with Ukrainians who are suffering from a war, which indeed they are, then, so, but, but, but we, all our sympathies reserved for them. But what about the Yemenis? What about people in so many other places where there are wars taking place? What about Palestinians? I mean, this, there are various wars raging in Africa. So the point is we, nobody wants to talk about that. But on the other hand, and this is the thing, Eastern Europeans in general, who essentially, uh, you know, for the most of the Eastern European countries, they, their economies have been destroyed by integration with Western Europe. That is why people in uh, Eastern Ukraine did not want to agree to the accession agreement back in 2014, because they knew this is what would happen. They knew that their industry... And you know that the industry in Ukraine is concentrated in the eastern part, in the Donbass region in particular, which has historically been the, the site of a considerable amount of Soviet-era industrialization. So they said, we don't want to lose our industry. We don't want to have this accession agreement. And they were right, because what does these, these, what do this integration into the EU mean for Eastern European countries? They essentially become migrant labor. And this is the privilege, you know, they get the, allegedly they get the privilege to go and work in other parts of Europe. But the fact is, in those parts, they are treated in ways, you know, while they, I'm sure there are big differences between the ways black people and other people are marginalized and, and Ukrainians are marginalized, but they also suffer a form of racism. And so this is what they wanted to stop. And in a certain sense, you know, if, if, if you, uh, this war is at all about you know, being incorporated into the into Europe, well, the, they are fighting, you know, Zelensky is leading a fight to subordinate Ukraine and Ukrainians to Western Europeans. Because, you know, race is, is a relative term. You know, the old English expression, the walks begin at Calais, right? So it depends, you know, who's talking and what is the reference. So you can racialize anybody you like. In Germany, perfectly... Uh, perfectly uh, uh, German people, East Germans, are racialized as Aussies. Interesting. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukman continue to be joined by Dr. Radhika Desai. And Dr. Desai, you know, when we see how effective the war propaganda has been from the U.S. government and the corporate-owned uh, media networks, a part of what makes that so effective, at least in my opinion, is the fact that Americans tend to have a very uh, poor grasp of history. 
And when you match that with the incessant nature and the aggressive nature of uh, imperialist propaganda, a lot of things get glossed over. And things have even gotten so bad, as we point out a lot, that to even um, acknowledge that there's history that's relevant to the war in Ukraine outside of what's happened over the last couple of months Well, this is something that is basically treated as verboten. You know what I mean? And I bring this up because I feel like the history of the Soviet Union and how Ukraine sort of factors into that. And even if we look at, you know, why NATO exists as an institution, I I almost feel like uh, that's a big part of the historical aspect of this that gets left out. And and to be honest, we don't even, I feel like at least in the mainstream, people aren't even talking about the 2014 coup, which is uh, centrally important to what's happening in Ukraine right now. But, you know, the, the Cold War period and the Soviet Union and how U.S. imperialism was operating at that point, I think uh, uh, explains quite a bit about our current moment as well, Dr. Desai. And I was just wondering how you sort of see that factoring into this broader issue. Absolutely. I mean, the whole history, uh, I mean, let's just, I mean, you raise a number of points and I will add a couple of my own anyway. Um, So you you began with NATO, you know, why does NATO even exist? Uh, Everybody keeps claiming that NATO is a defensive um, alliance. But the fact is that NATO was created at a time when there was no danger of any, you know, the Yalta and other agreements had just been agreed. Uh, spheres of influence had been agreed so that, you know, they, nobody was going to cross into the other spheres of influence. And generally speaking, the Soviet Union, in fact, has kept to its spheres of influence. So NATO was created in a context where there was no uh, threat. And of course, in this context, then, Uh, In order for NATO to exist, in order for the United States to spend so much money on its military, in order for the United States to conduct military operations thousands of miles from its own borders, uh, allegedly to secure the United States, etc., for all these things to happen, threats have to be manufactured. And this is what we are seeing. We are seeing the manufacturing of a new threat. Russia, which only like uh, a decade ago, people were still, you know, Russia was part of the G8, people were, you know, there were even discussions about whether Russia should be included into NATO, etc. The Europeans uh, had been uh, 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 engaged in trying to create a European security architecture with Russia. All of this is completely forgotten because we are now in a new phase of manufacturing uh, uh, enemies, right? So, uh, and remember, you know, after uh, the Soviet Union ceased to exist. Uh, the new threats that were manufactured were terrorism. So, and then we fought like a 20-year war against terrorism, or the United States fought a 20-year war against terrorism. And uh, look at what it got out of it. Uh, you know, last fall, essentially the United States left Afghanistan having gained nothing with the Taliban taking back power and leaving Afghanistan in a, in a perilous condition. Right now, as you know, you know, speaking of all the wars and the humanitarian disasters taking place around the world, which is completely erased by this wall-to-wall, you know, you, 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 can't read, you, you can't open any website without reading about Ukraine. We don't talk about Afghanistan, whose money the United States has stolen and is causing a famine there. Anyway, so NATO. So they say NATO 
NATO is a defensible end. NATO was created first, and indeed, even then, Russia did nothing. It is only after Germany was inducted into NATO in 1954, that the Warsaw Pact, the opposing Warsaw Pact was created, and it was the defensive alliance. And then, of course, in the years since, uh, and as you know, you know, in the case, you know, since the Ukraine conflict has emerged, we have talked again and again, Russia has brought up the fact that you guys promised Gorbachev, he said the West promised Gorbachev that, um, the, 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 you know, that, that NATO would not, you know, having absorbed East Germany, NATO would uh, not expand a single inch beyond that eastward, right? Uh, so the first reaction in the West was, oh, no such promise was made. Then there was documentary evidence that has shown that indeed promises were made. The foreign ministers of both Germany and France at the time have gone on record to say, yes, we did promise Gorbachev this. Um, so, so th- this has been pointed out. Uh, and so when this became clear, they said, oh, well, it was only a verbal promise. And of course, precisely because it was a verbal promise, Putin actually, all through last fall, the, there was, as you will remember, there were these so-called alleged negotiations between uh, uh, the United States and Russia about, you know, exactly about, you know, about Ukraine, about the Minsk agreements, blah, blah, and so on, and generally speaking, relating to NATO. It turned out, of course, that uh, Russia was negotiating while the United States was merely using those negotiations to provoke. So anyway, the Russians were essentially, one of the things they wanted in this was to a written agreement saying, okay, we will not further advance, you know, we will not incorporate NATO, Ukraine into NATO. And, you know, I should also say, uh, let me just finish what, this point, and then I want to say another thing, which is I find really shocking. So the, to finish on the NATO point, NATO is not only a, not a defensive alliance, it's an aggressive alliance. It has continued to expand eastward. It uh, expands around the world. It is now trying to create Pacific arms. We saw all the creation of AUKUS as the first step towards that. So, so we know all that. And, and NATO exists not in order to uphold international law, which exists, which is enshrined in the UN Charter, etc., etc., but in fact, precisely to undermine it. And then whatever it is the United States wants in its place, the United States calls the rules-based international order, or RUBIO for short. So NATO exists as a counter to the United Nations and to international law. And, uh, and, and we need to be very clear about that. Now, about Ukraine and NATO, you know, I find this so shocking. Consider this. And we are told that this war is about Ukraine's sovereign right to join NATO. The fact of the matter is, Ukraine can never join NATO. Number one, because uh, NATO has to agree, we unanimously agree, and there are many countries in NATO who will not allow th- th- them to join. Number two, uh, 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 no country whose borders are in dispute, and NATO, uh, Ukraine is one, can join NATO. So we have all these reasons why Ukraine cannot join NATO, yet we are told that this is about Ukraine's right to join the war. Then we are told, you know, uh, uh, if Ukraine was part of NATO, it would be better defended. No, the United States has no intention of defending NATO. I think I've done this before on your program, and I'll do it again. It's not me, John Mearsheimer, another very well-known American academic, international relations expert, etc., who has said that the United States wants to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. So essentially, that's what the United States is doing there. So and, and, and in order to make Ukraine pay for weapons, 
with whatever it's got, you know, eventually if it hasn't got money, Ukraine's uh, productive apparatuses will be taken over by Americans. So anyway, the point is that it is better that Ukraine is not in NATO because that way the United States can charge Ukraine for all this military equipment, rather than having to rush to Ukraine's defense at its own expense. So think about the hypocrisy of Russia, of the whole Ukraine-NATO US connection. Yeah, hypocrisy is uh, at the core, aside from, you know, militarism and white supremacy of American exceptionalism. And, you know, here we are in another endless war, or at least a war that doesn't seem to have a reasonable end that the U.S. government wants to allow to happen because I really am convinced, and I don't know why, I'm kind of trying to give the man a little bit of leeway. I really am convinced that Zelensky realizes that he's being used and he just wants an end to this, uh, but he, I don't think he's being allowed to negotiate, as you said at the top of the show, Dr. Decide, to negotiate a settlement so that this can end. And not only is uh, negotiations, not only are negotiations not being allowed, but but now NATO, well, the U.S., is uh, strongly supporting potential bids of other countries to join NATO, and that's Sweden and Finland. Now, I thought last time I checked that Sweden, no, that that was Switzerland. I always get them confused. But, you know, there is still this this, you know, this this veneer of uh, impartiality that uh, some of these countries, uh, these Nordic countries have. And historically, again, we know that's not always true. But but now all of a sudden, countries that have had no interest in joining NATO, um, Sweden and Finland, all of a sudden now, there's a bid for them to join NATO. And in fact, people were polled in, uh, I think it was Finland, and for for the first time in God knows how long, joining NATO was a popular thing. So the the popularity of, quote unquote, standing with Ukraine and uh, that manifesting into support of NATO is not just a phenomenon that's happening here. It is also happening around the world. Well, I won't say around the world in other countries that could do more to further entrench NATO, Dr. Desai. Yeah, I mean, you know, this this whole point is a rather complex one. So uh, let's just take it, you know, one by one, point by point. Number one, you know, I personally think that uh, the expansion of NATO in the post-Cold War period uh, has been has uh, has NATO in the post Cold War period. NATO has expanded to the point of incoherence. It now includes members who, if they were attacked, it is not at all clear that all the other NATO members would readily agree that they have to be defended. Because so so I think that there is a serious issue there. You know that whether whether NATO would rise to the defense of all its current members. And I think part of the reason why this is happening is also quite interesting. The more I think about it, the more I look at the ordinary, the non, you know, the non-Ukraine war-related uh, politics of the United States, of Britain, of even France or Germany. The more I wonder whether there is anybody in charge. I think what's really happening. 
happening is that capitalism itself is, uh, capitalist societies themselves are getting so ungovernable, partly because the neoliberal, uh, you know, approach to uh, policies, uh, neoliberal policy orientation, which essentially means increase the power of big corporations. It doesn't mean free market or anything, just increase the power of big corporations. It has, it is so disappointing to ordinary working people and even to small business people that essentially they are, they only appear to be consenting to this because they don't have an alternative. And when there is an alternative, even though it is very unattractive, like Le Pen, for example, they, that alternative gets a shocking number of votes, right? So we are really looking at societies that are out of control and political and, and capitalist classes who no longer have any coherent hegemonic ideology about what their purpose is, what they need to do. All they care about is making the next million bucks. And that's why they, it's not as though, I mean, I really don't know whether the United States has any strategy other than, you know, let's keep this war going because you know what, all our wonderful defense contractors are making lots of money. And of course, they, the war has other uses. The United States economy is in very bad shape. We just saw today that uh, the United States, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it had negative growth re- recently. So, uh, 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 in the last quarter. So in in this context, you know, it, President Biden can say to Americans, oh, you please don't complain about inflation. You must suffer this little difficulty for Ukraine, etc. So that's my first point. I'm really not sure that there is any overall strategy. That's one thing. I mean, you know, yes, let's sell arms. Yes, let's try to diminish uh, uh, and undermine powers that appear to, uh, that have the gall to stand up and say, we'd like to have our own uh, economic and foreign policies. Thank you, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as far as Finland and Sweden and so on are concerned, I also wonder, I think that, yes, you know, people, I mean, I don't think it's a, so much a question of stand up for Ukraine, but where the propaganda has worked, because quite frankly, I think most people in all countries uh, are more concerned about their day-to-day lives and so on. While uh, uh, when you t- open the newspaper or, or, or open websites or turn on the television, all you see is news about Ukraine. People's real concerns are with inflation, with their jobs, with the, with the still raging pandemic, which has been hidden from view by the media. This is what people are concerned about. And I think in, U- uh, in the case of Finland particularly, I think, uh, and maybe Sweden, what seems to have worked is the propaganda about Russia being a big bad a neighbor you know and and maybe that's why temporarily they may feel that you know we must join nato etc but I, i'm not sure how this is going to pan out because even if they join nato i'm not sure they're joining an alliance that's going to increase their security yeah, I mean, it, it really is a, a question of whether or not that's going to be uh, the case, Dr. Desai. And I mean, just uh, so many things, so many shifts have taken place. Uh, I feel like so many dynamics and things like that in terms of geopolitics are just uh, have really been impacted Excuse me, by this war in Ukraine and, and likely will continue to. And I think a lot of it has to do with something that you just mentioned. When you talk about how uh, capitalist countries are having serious issues, um, the, the neoliberal program has just, you know, been exposed for, you know, the, the fraud that that it always was. You know what I mean? And, and it seems to me, doctor, that the capitalist class, I think, is aware that this system is in jeopardy. And it just feels like on a number of levels, a lot of what we see um, coming from uh, that ruling class 
and its representatives in government, in the media and things like that. I mean, it feels like a kind of desperation, almost like uh, uh, they're throwing everything at the wall, trying to save this system and the power that they wield in it. But uh, it just really sorts of seems like the um, uh, attendant contradictions or capitalism are really just sort of eating the system from the inside. And, and like I always say, I mean, no matter how um, sharp or intense these contradictions get, um, the system isn't going to sort of crumble all on its own. But Dr. Desai, it, it does seem that a big part of why sort of geopolitics are uh, uh, unfolding the way they are in this moment is because that capitalist system and the imperialist system that emerges from it has uh, uh, reached a kind of inflection point, it seems. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, again, if we take, you know, uh, since the leitmotif of our program today has been history, let's take a historical view at this. of this. Basically, Western countries led by the United States and Britain essentially uh, decided in the 1970s and 80s that the way to get out of the stagflationist crisis that had been created was to go neoliberal, essentially, to take the neoliberal route, to, to overturn the socialistic measures that had given given them the golden age of growth in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So this is the decision they made instead of saying, you know what, if these measures helped us so well, maybe the solution to the crisis is we need to deepen them. They didn't do that. Instead, they said, we're going to roll them back. We're going to attack union power. We are going to uh, attack wages and working people. We are going to reduce social services, blah, blah, etc. So that's what they did. And, you know, and the idea was that if you did that, if you freed capital from the shackles of state and society, that it would regenerate, it would become dynamic again, it would get back its mojo, etc. Well, you know what? It didn't happen. Because, quite frankly, the very simple reason is that the competitive markets of, on which the theory of neoliberalism depends does not apply to the current stage of capital, which is dominated by big monopoly corporations. So all it did was essentially to give lots of freedom to big monopoly corporations to do whatever they want. Well, what did they do? They increasingly began stashing their money away in financial markets rather than investing them productively. They did not create jobs. They created speculation and they created crises and they created inequality and they create useless products like Facebook and, and whatnot, which in order to be useful should actually be publicly owned. But anyway, let's, let's not even go there. So that's what they have done. And so, the, so Western capitalist countries have lost their productive mojo. Meanwhile, China and other countries, to the extent that they have not been neoliberal, have continued to advance productively. So exactly the, 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 the ideology, the policy paradigm that was supposed to revive capitalism has not only failed to do so, but it's its uselessness, its falseness has also been exposed by the fact that countries like China, which are essentially, you can call them socialist market economies, they are doing so much better. And they have continued to grow. And of course, during the pandemic, you saw the complete shambles of the neoliberal capitalist countries approach. You know, so the United States is about to reach the one million mark. You know, if you take excess deaths into account, it has already crossed the one million mark of one million COVID deaths. But 
the United States uh, uh, does not want to uh, address this problem. It has basically thrown up its hands and it has said, you know, having right from the beginning, they followed the neoliberal path. So they said, you know, we are going to adopt that strategy that's going to make big bucks for our corporations, particularly big pharma. So they adopted a vaccines only strategy. Vaccines are not you know, vaccines are necessary, but they are far from sufficient. You need many other means. But instead of learning from countries like China that have managed to do so much better and are still doing so much better than the United States, they criticize China, saying, oh, your strategy is too costly. Well, is one million lives not a cost? Do you not care? But, you know, increasingly what we are seeing is that the neoliberal way of dealing with COVID is simply going to make COVID another disease of poverty, where people who are poor, marginalized, etc., they will continue to suffer from this, whereas the others, they will, on the whole, be free from COVID. And if they fall ill, they will get top-notch treatments, which, of course, poor people do not, which is not within the grasp of poor people. So it is really, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like morally, these societies have become repulsive, but they continue to exist. And I think that, you know, well, shows like yours are certainly making a contribution to at least increasing the awareness that we need a different system, you know. There, the, the neoliberalism has excoriated our societies and it has lost whatever it has helped the West lose its former preeminence in the world system. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Dr. Radhika Desai is here. And uh, doctor, before we went to the break, you... We're giving the example of uh, socialist China and in, in sort of counterposing it against a, a capitalism that is in decline. And it's sort of like if you look at U.S. imperialism, certainly it uh, it has a history of going after countries that it feels is a threat or isn't sufficiently subservient to Washington, regardless of the system. But there, there always does seem to be a particular political significance to attacking socialist countries, whether it's uh, China or the DPRK or Cuba or Venezuela or Nicaragua or what have you. Uh, and for those of us in the West, I mean, we're told our whole lives that the capitalist system is the greatest system there is. It's quote unquote natural. It, it's it's responsible for all the advancements in humanity and none of the bad stuff, uh, apparently. And I think particularly as uh, socialism increases uh, uh, the popularity of it, at least inside uh, the U.S., then, you know, it, it just seems like that's a political threat to the uh, ruling class, if you will, and the political elites 
as a whole uh, in, in terms of their power. And so if we look at the two countries that the U.S. sees as its main competitor, you know, China and Russia, uh, you know, two countries, one of them socialist, one of them capitalist. But Washington uh, obviously sees them as a threat in uh, uh, different ways, uh, Dr. Desai. But as you were noting, whether we're talking about the coronavirus or education or housing, uh, uh, sort of contrasting capitalism and socialism definitely feels like a tale of two systems with one of them clearly uh, having the interest of humanity at the center and the other with uh, the interest of profits as its chief priority. Absolutely. I mean, look, I think, you know, one of the things people forget is how long socialism has been around. Like, even if you think about the middle of the 19th century, when Marx and Engels wrote their Communist Manifesto, the fact of the matter was that they were already aware that they, like, they basically said that we are presenting a new form of socialism. They called it scientific socialism, by which they meant not that, you know, lab coats and test tubes, what they, or, you know, spreadsheets or anything. What they meant is that they are trying to present socialism not as something that's morally right, but is his, that, that, that is, that is uh, materially and historically necessary. Like, it, that's where we are going, okay? So, what I'm, the reason I bring this up is that already even in the early 1960s, century. And even going back before that, there were basically capitalism has been criticized since it began, more or less since it began. If you think of St. Thomas More's Utopia, for example, it is a criticism of a capitalist society that is just beginning to emerge. And people are saying, how can you have such a society? So, you know, socialism is not some modern day uh, aberration that has emerged, as some Frankfurt School theorists, for example, argued and so on. It is as old as capitalism itself because, and you, you used a very interesting word, uh, Sean, you said that uh, people argue that capitalism is natural. In reality, what all these people had argued, it wasn't just Marx and Engels alone, and many people continue to argue, capitalism is the most unnatural system that humanity has essentially chanced on. There is, there are far, you know, of course there are uh, uh, other ways, also other oppressive ways of organizing society, but certainly this is not a natural way at all. It is oppressive, it is anarchical, it is un- just it is exploitative and it doesn't work it break it corrodes the bonds of society it undermines individuals from within it spoils our relationship with nature i mean what can be good about it but we continue to fight ideas of socialism because you know at the end of the day uh, if you know if capitalism cannot be justified positively by pointing to all the any good things it does because there are basically no good things that it does then they can say, well, but the alternative, namely socialism, is so bad, we have to stick to capitalism. That is the purpose, the critique of socialist societies as uh, economically inept, as uh, politically authoritarian, as culturally dead. I mean, none of these things are true. The Soviet Union produced a lifestyle for a really large population that was comparable 
to Western countries with the additional moral satisfaction of knowing that you live in a society in which at least you are trying to make sure that nobody is left behind, that you enjoy, that in your society people are considerably more equal. And Soviet culture was amazing. I mean, to this day, if you go to uh, 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 the Soviet Union, any city in the Soviet Union, just the organization of cities gives you a sense of the importance of public life, of public culture. You take the most, just take the metros, and they are just amazing. You know, if you, if you compare the Moscow metro, the St. Petersburg metro, to to uh, the New York metro, you'll get my meaning. The New York metro exists in order, or the subway system exists in order to transport workers from one place to the other. These other ones, the, the, the Soviet metros, existed to transport citizens, and there is a world of a difference among them. Yeah, you know, a couple of things you said, Dr. Desai, that capitalism destroys the individual from the inside and that it, it destroys our relationship with nature. Just the fact that to make the argument for the usefulness of capitalism, people have to be, be convinced that they can make it on their own, that um, success happens through an individual's hard work and hard labor. But the people who have the most money and the most power in this country uh, were literally the beneficiaries of a birth lottery, if you will, and were usually born into families with a lot of money and power already, or someone came along and helped them out (laughs) and helped them along the way in amassing their riches and 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 in amassing their riches, meaning help them to exploit the labor of other people by undervaluing that labor. Um, and, and and just especially since we just observed Earth Day and uh, the death of a climate activist who immolated himself on the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court how capitalism destroys our relationship with nature. I don't think people quite understand, and I think we do in this, in this conversation, I, but I don't think people really understand how, how absolutely accurate and terrifying that statement is, that in the pursuit of capitalist gain. There are people, individuals and corporations that are literally destroying the environment we live in that we must survive in in order to make more money that if they keep doing it, none of us are going to survive. Again, yeah, you you guys are, you know, this is such an important statement you've just made, Jackie. And and I just want to say a couple of things here. Number one, um, I think that uh, 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 the um, uh, not only I mean it's bad enough that the environmental destruction is happening as a result of corporate greed, but you know what's even worse is that in capitalist countries, particularly in the United States, the only types of solutions that this allegedly progressive government of Democratic administration of Joseph Biden is willing to countenance are those means which will make further profits for corporations. If it is not profitable, it's not a solution. So we are not willing to countenance solutions that are actually about society taking back control from corporations 
uh, back control of their relationship to nature, the nature of society and its productive system to nature, etc. So this is, to, uh, to me, it is the most terrifying thing. That's why COP26 failed. That's why we are not going to get the solution to the climate crisis. And of course, right now, as you know, we are already looking at the whole climate discourse has been swept under the carpet. Now we are all fighting for more and more fossil fuels, right? Because this is this is the way to go. President Biden has uh, uh, has um, uh, uh, started licensing new oil exploration and drilling and so on. So so that's the first thing. The second thing is that you know there's another lie that people tell about socialism, and that is that socialism is bad for the environment. This is absolutely not the case, and I must highly recommend that you get my my friend and colleague Salvatore Engel Di Mauro to come and talk to you because he's just written a book called Socialist States and the Environment, and you should interview him because he demonstrates that this is simply not the case. And I would I would say that for the simple reason that in a socialist society. Um, Essentially, so, uh, you know, you may have uh, 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 corporations and, and, and capitalists and so on, but ultimately there is some broader social vision that is in control that keeps capitalists, even the most powerful of them, under control. And I think without moving to such a system, I think that the environment is indeed doomed. Yeah, I think that's the case. I, I do think that's the case when we talk about <clears throat> the role that uh that capital plays in, in driving so much climate change. But, you know, this is what happens when you live under a system that uh, is more than willing to destroy humanity and destroy the planet itself, all for the purpose of making a buck. And the point you're making, doctor, about, um, you know, the kind of social cohesion that emerges out of a people centered system, I think is very, very important because, you know, right now uh, uh, in the United States, as you noted, uh, I mean, we're, we're staring down the barrel at a million people dead from the coronavirus in the wealthiest nation in the history of nations. And a part of the issue um, is, in fact, cultural and how the, the social cohesion that we see in other countries is simply not uh, present in the United States because of the culture that emerges out of this uh, capitalist system that encourages individualism, that it, it encourages sort of personal, quote unquote, freedoms or liberties as sort of uh, the primary thing and the thing you should be most concerned about, as opposed to the well-being of the collective. And, and I tend to think that um, it was very purposeful that that kind of attitude and thinking was inculcated in us because it disinclines us. Um, to actually organize uh, against the class of people that are uh, exploiting us all. And so I just feel like everything that we're seeing, I mean, from the way that the U.S. Um, is operating vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine to the, the, the climate, to the uh, suppression and censorship of uh, uh, dissent, I mean, what it all sort of shows, uh, I think, is that uh, regardless of you know, what these officials say and the way that they try to sugarcoat things and frame them and basically try to skew reality as we know it, they are very aware that uh, their ill-gotten power uh, is slipping, right? And so the question is, if the power there in that class may be slipping because this system is in crisis, well, then what is going to come after it? Well, I think that's a question that has to be answered by a, a people's movement 
that will have to struggle to really overturn this current system and bring about an entirely new one. It's uh, I'd be hard pressed to point to any other solution to the problems uh, of facing the planet right now, facing uh, uh, the masses of poor working and oppressed people right now, and indeed uh, the struggling peoples of the earth. And so these are the sorts of things that we really have to be keen on as things continue to move forward, because the, the propaganda, all of that is not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. And our best weapon against that is to remain sharp on our end, continue study and continue political education. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. want to thank Dr. Radica Desai so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.